0: Some weeks, the sermon illustrations just write themselves. So this week, have you all been tracking what's been going on in the Suez Canal? Is the ship still stuck? Does anybody know? The ship is still stuck in the Suez Canal, I think since Tuesday. Since Tuesday. So if you don't know the story, let me catch you up. And again, these things get recorded. You could watch this thing years from now and be like, what is he talking about? The Suez Canal. Here's what's happening. The Suez Canal connects Europe and Asia. It's a big waterway. Apparently 12% of the world's trade daily goes through the Suez Canal. So ships go through there and they're transporting all kinds of things. On Tuesday, winds blew and they blew this giant ship sideways. So where it got stuck in the mud or in something deeper, who knows, and it's blocking the entire Suez Canal. Meaning, since Tuesday, there's been nothing able to pass through the Suez Canal, and it's caused all kinds of problems globally around the world. 12% of the world's trade goes through there, and none of them can get through because this giant ship is stuck in it. 225 pound, or ton ship, yeah, pound wouldn't be that much. Ton ship. Again, we have a picture. Kevin, can you put this picture up on the screen? There's a, a picture of the Suez Canal ship. There it is. And this is, this is the picture that I enjoyed the most of this week. This is just a small part of the ship that's stuck. But you see here, this, this, I mean, really, it's a big tractor. This is a big tractor. It's probably like, yeah, I don't know how big it is, but it's big. And it's, this is early on in the process of trying to save this ship. It's trying to push the ship <laughs> Uh, with its little thing, or then I think they've transitioned into different ways of trying to save the ship. But it's just a funny picture, because you have what you normally would think is a big piece of equipment, strong, can move most things, but in comparison to the the giant ship, Evergreen is the name of it, um, it had no chance. It had no chance. And so, like I said, some weeks the sermon illustrations just reveal themselves very easily. This week, we're going to be looking at Jesus the Savior. Jesus the Savior. And again, if you've been with us for the last several months, we've been doing each week Jesus the fill in the blank. Started with Jesus the Good News. And next week, we're going to finish our series on Mark with Jesus the King. But this week, it's Jesus the Savior. And the connection to the Suez Canal, I think, is pretty striking. If there's nothing else you hear today, just hear right up, at the, right up at the beginning. If we try to be our own Savior, we are no better than that tractor trying to push that giant ship out of the Suez Canal. That's us. If we're trying to be our own Savior, we're just like that ship. No matter how strong we are physically or spiritually, we are not capable of saving ourselves or others, or certainly the Hadi people in Bangladesh, or people around the world. We need a bigger savior. We need a better plan. We need someone to which we can shout, Hosanna, and it actually be responded to. Last year, one year ago, most every church around the world was doing Palm Sunday at home or virtually. Uh, which we're continuing in part this year. But last year at the church I was serving previously, I, I did the welcome uh, on Palm Sunday. And again, we were in a, a church with no people in it. And I, I did the same thing I did to you today. I, I, the first thing I said was, Hosanna! And I did it really loudly. And later that week, uh, one of the people in our congregation said, we had the, t- the, the volume on our TV turned all the way up accidentally because we'd watched a movie or something before. And when you said Hosanna, the whole, the whole house shook because of how loud it was. So I said, sorry, but that's kind of the point. This is what the people were shouting in the story in Mark 11 that we're going to dive into this morning. And it's just an amazing story. So come with us on the journey this morning through Mark 11 as we inch towards crowning Jesus as king. We're inching towards there because Jesus is the king, and we're going to see that in fullness next week at the resurrection. But what we're going to learn today is that the fact that Jesus is king shows us that, in fact, he's the only one that can be our savior. That's maybe the big overarching point of today. The fact that Jesus is king means that he's the only one that can be our savior. So as you hold that palm branch today in your hand that we've passed out, may that be a reminder to you that Jesus is king and savior. Carry it with you this week. Hold on to it. As you read your devotions this week, look at that palm branch and say, this is the Savior and the King. May it be the bridge between uh, Palm Sunday and Easter for you. So, four progressions this week that we're going to look at. This morning, we're going to look at the question of how is Jesus uniquely our only Savior? So again, if we're not the Savior, if we can get to the place this morning where we understand that, let me try to unveil for you through this passage how Jesus proves himself to be the unique one and only Savior. So the four things we're going to look at are his burden, his method, his people, and his power. So through the progress of this morning, we're going to look at Jesus's burden, Jesus's method, Jesus's people, Jesus's power. And that's going to show us the uniqueness of Jesus being our Savior. So again, we'll begin first with Jesus's burden. Look at the first two verses of Mark 11. Jesus' burden means that he can take on what no one else can take on. Jesus is taking on a burden of being the Savior that no one else, not you, not me, not any king or principality in this world can take on. He alone is shouldering the burden. So Jesus has been setting his face for Jerusalem for a couple of weeks now. You remember a couple weeks ago we said that it was a turning point in the Gospel of Mark. Uh, And it was the transfiguration week where Jesus kind of showed himself as the fullness of God's glory. And then he set his face towards Jerusalem, marching intentionally into the danger that was surely going to follow him there. Because that's what saviors do. That's what superheroes do. They walk into the danger. And that's what Jesus has been doing. And so it says clearly they've been on their way to Jerusalem and we see from the end of chapter 10 that they were coming from Jericho. They were coming from Jericho. And so I learned something interesting this week about the trek from Jericho, to Jeru- from Jericho, not even to Jerusalem, but from Jericho to Bethany and Bethpage where it says this, this begins. Jericho, you may know, I didn't know this actually, Jericho is the lowest city on planet Earth. It sits 800 feet below sea level. Do you know that? That's, I didn't that's amazing to me. 800 feet below sea level. That's where Jericho sits. And so Jesus is going from Jericho ultimately to Jerusalem in today's passage. And Jerusalem sits at 3,000 feet above sea level. Got any hikers in here? That's a serious hike. That's almost 4,000 feet of elevation change. That's a serious, serious hike. We talked several weeks ago about taking Jesus saying you can take a staff with you on your walk Uh, because it's a symbol of Jesus' presence with them. But also, it's really handy for these walks that Jesus took his disciples on. So they're taking a 12-mile hike, 4,000 feet in elevation change. And this is how they begin to approach Jerusalem. And they come there by way of two cities, which are right next to each other. Again, geography is not my strong suit either, but you can learn some cool things through this. They come to two cities, Bethpage and Bethany. Two cities right next to each other, about two miles from Jerusalem. And that's where the story begins in chapter 11. So both of these places uh, were prominent places. Bethany is probably where Lazarus and his family lived. And so in other Gospels, it talks about the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead earlier. And so you'll see throughout this week, if you do our readings, that Jesus returns each night to Bethany. Bethany. That's kind of where he he decides to sleep each night during Holy Week. And a lot of people think he's probably staying at his friend Lazarus' house. It's kind of his his hotel. It's where he chooses to stay each week. And the Mount of Olives is also nearby. And it says uh, that's where they were coming up to. Bethpage and Bethany were at the Mount of Olives in verse 1, it says. And again, let's use the Old Testament to help us understand what's happening in this passage. The prophet Zechariah loves to be quoted uh, in this passage. And so Jesus is fulfilling a lot of what the prophet Zechariah talks about, particularly now with the Mount of Olives. Zechariah 14.4, it says, On that day, his feet, his feet meaning the one who's going to come and rescue uh, Israel, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives the Messiah would come from the Mount of Olives. And so it's pretty intentionally written here that that's where they were. And the Mount of Olives gives a spectacular view of Jerusalem. So people say, as you're doing this hike from Jericho up to Jerusalem, you get two miles out and you kind of get to the top of this crest on the Mount of Olives and you see the city. Two weekends ago, my family and I uh, hiked through the Lynn Woods, And we went up to the Stone Tower. Anybody ever been up to Stone Tower on top of Lynn Woods? Yeah, of course you have. A lot of you guys have been there. But if you get up to the top of Stone Tower in Lynn, kind of climb one one flight of stairs, what can you see off in the distance? The skyline of Boston, too, on a clear day. Yeah, so there's an observation tower. You can see the skyline of Boston. And that's what is happening with Jesus. He brings his disciples up. They can see the city of Jerusalem, where they're about to spend their time. And Jesus has a plan for his disciples, and it's a bit strange, and he says, go. Does that sound like Jesus at all? Other things you've heard about Jesus? He says, go. Later on, Jesus will say, go and make disciples. I remember a couple weeks ago, he said, go to sell everything you have. And here he says, go and find a colt. <laughs> go and find the little baby horse. It's all tied up, and it's waiting there for you. Zechariah has something to say about colts and horses. Zechariah 9.9 has the same word. He says, Behold, your king is coming to you, having salvation, righteous, humble and mounted on a donkey, or on a colt, the foil of a donkey. Jesus says, Go find that colt. I know exactly where it is, I want you to go get it. And this is the key part about this first point about the burden. Find the colt that no one has ever sat on. Find the one that no one has ever sat on. Have you ever thought about how ridiculous of a claim that is? How do you know if no one has sat on that colt before? Do they have like an observation camera that's like, make sure no one ever sits on this colt until the Messiah comes? I don't, I don't think that's how it happened. Jesus here is just, he's clearly showing his disciples I'm the one who knows whether that cult has been sat on. And it's actually pointing to a deeper reality of the burden that I'm going to carry, no one else can carry. No one else can ride into Jerusalem and do what I'm about to do. And so therefore, the symbol of this cult that no one has ever ridden on is the symbol of me carrying the burden of saving the whole world from sin and death that no one else can bear. No one can bear that no one can sit on that colt just like no one can carry that cross that's about to happen in a few days. So what's the burden then that Jesus is carrying? I've just alluded to it. I think it's threefold. Sin, the broken relationship we have in each of our hearts that separates us from God forever, our rebellion from God that started in the Garden of Eden. Number two, the evil and the brokenness in our world, The injustice, the corrupt systems, the world that is raging war against itself, just the very clear evil and brokenness that's in our world. Jesus is bearing that burden to save it. And then ultimately, the third one is death. Jesus is bearing the burden of the problem of death that each of us will die because of sin. And many people in our world die quicker or sadder because of the evil the brokenness that's in our world. And all of us die because of the sin that we have in our hearts. And some of us die quicker because of the injustice that we we face. So this is the threefold beast that Jesus is staring in the face two miles out from Jerusalem when he tells his disciples to go get that colt. He says, go do it because no one's ever sat on it and I'm about to bear this burden that no one can bear. So the takeaway for you and me from that point is Don't try to be the one that bears the burden of sin and death and evil and corruption and injustice in the world. You can do things to care for injustice and brokenness and sin in the world for sure, but you're not the ultimate one that can bear the whole burden. You are a shadow of the true one. Just like the shadows on this back wall this morning from these new lights we put up reflect, so we reflect the sun. But Jesus is the ultimate one who shines. Jesus bears the burden. Number two, what's his method? How does Jesus choose to do this? How does he go before his disciples? What's his method of saving that makes him him unique in the history of saviors in the world? There's been a lot of people that have promised saving. There's been a lot of superheroes that we like to look to. But Jesus is the one. And How is he unique? What's his method? So looking at verses three to six. Uh, you see Jesus here speaking words. He says here, uh, he he basically gets in front of the disciples. He says, I know it's kind of strange. I'm telling you to go get this colt. And there's probably going to be people there that are going to say this back to you because it'll kind of look like you're stealing it. So if that happens, here's what you need to say. And let's just summarize it up, up at the beginning. The method that Jesus does that he uses is proving his trustworthiness by his word his trustworthiness, and his authority. Just as Jesus knew that no one else had ridden that colt before, he also anticipates the response of the people looking around. And Jesus says, if they say this to you, then say this back. And what does he point to? The Lord. He says, say say the Lord has need for it. Pointing to his authority. Jesus is saying, I'm the Lord. Do you know what the word Lord means? We don't use it much today except for, like, Harry Potter, which uh, isn't not, not all of us necessarily even know what that means in Harry Potter. So in, in modern terms, we don't call each other Lord very often. Lord simply just means master. Or I heard one person say it can mean boss. Jesus is the boss. He's the master. He's the one in charge. He's the one in authority. And so he says, tell them the Lord has need for it. And his disciples were obedient. They went on this strange trek, this strange journey to go get this colt. They listened to everything he said, which again, don't take that for granted. They haven't always done that in the story so far. This time they're fully obedient. They go looking after the colt. They find it. And then they, it says, verse five, I think is really important here. It says, uh, verse six, I'm sorry. So it's, it says, there were some standing there who said to him, what are you doing untying the colt? And in verse 6, this is the part that I think is important. And they told them, my my translation says, just as Jesus said. They said to them just what Jesus had told them. They saw Jesus' words as trustworthy to the point where they could just recite back to these men that literally stood up and said, hey, what are you doing with that cult? Again, picture this scene. It's kind of like, going to pick up something from the store outside and you just kind of pick it up and start walking off with it. And the guys kind of run outside and say, hey, what do you think you're doing? And it'd be like you saying, oh, Jesus said that I could take this and we'll bring it, we'll bring it back after he's done with it. Oh, okay. You're, okay, you can go, go on. Sounds good. Again, just like let yourself see the, the absurdity a little bit of this. Jesus is proving his words as trustworthy. It's pretty remarkable. Again, we don't know. I don't think Jesus went ahead of them and wore, like, I don't think he went ahead and, like, reserved the cult. I think it would have told us that. I don't think he put it on loan. Uh, I think this is showing the power of Jesus's words, his trustworthy, authoritative words. So what's the takeaway for us here? Jesus has commands for his people, and if we listen to them and we say to people, this is just what Jesus said, Jesus uses that. Let's deflect our mission and our method onto the one who's giving the instructions. And people will be responsive to that. Even these men that stood up and said, hey, what do you think you're doing? Jesus' words are authoritative and trustworthy. So now that we've talked about Jesus' uniqueness from his burden and from his method, let's look at his people Every savior, every superhero, every person who's trying to make a difference has a, an, a people they're trying to save. Batman is trying to save the people of Gotham City. I've talked a lot about Batman in the last few weeks. Sorry, he's just my go-to superhero. But look, pick, pick whatever superhero you want. They always have a people they're trying to save. Who is Jesus trying to save? Clearly, the nation of Israel is important. Clearly, the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, are important. And that's from Genesis up to now. God has been using the people of Israel to save the world. And God has a preference to save them, to show his power to everybody. So Jesus is clearly trying to save Israel, but he's also blowing it up here. And we're going to see this in increasing fashion in the next few weeks, especially when we get to our missions conference after Easter. We're going to look at Jesus' role to the nations and we've done this when we've been praying for the world, how Jesus came not just to save Israel, but to save the whole world. Even the 2.8 billion we talked about earlier that haven't ever heard the good news. Jesus is still on a rescue mission to save them and is using the church to do that. But in this passage today, he's looking to save Israel primarily as a, as a, as a sign to the nations of what he's doing. So verse 11, or verse 7 Uh, Here in this chapter, it says, They brought the colt to Jesus, they threw their cloaks on it, and Jesus sat on the colt. Again, he's bearing the burden himself. He alone is sitting on the colt. He's the one that's going to ride this into Jerusalem. And again, think about an animal that's never been ridden before. If you sit on it for the first time, do you think that's going to go well, usually? Anybody ever read the story Black Beauty or seen the movie? The wild horse that you sit on, and it just takes you know days and days or weeks and weeks to finally calm a horse. Jesus sits on the colt, seemingly, no problems. And they begin to ride into Jerusalem. And this is the reaction that is famous for this day, Palm Sunday, verses 8 to 10. We get to see the reaction of the crowd. What did the people do? How did they react? I think I discovered something really interesting this week, I think, through this, uh, this part of the, of the story. It says here in verse 8 that many people, many people spread their cloaks on the ground. So again, I see some jackets laying around here. This would be like throwing your jackets on the ground for Jesus to walk on as he comes into the city. And this is, this is going back to Jehu when he becomes king in 2 Kings Uh, chapter 9. He was anointed the king of Israel, and people put garments on the ground in front of them as he marched into Jerusalem. The trumpet was blown, and people shouted, Jehu is king! Hooray for Jehu! He's the new king of Israel. And he's marching in on the garments of the people. Many people, it says, on Palm Sunday, put their garments on the ground. So many, I think, that it makes me question why we call it Palm Sunday and not Garment Sunday or Cloak Sunday, I think either one could be appropriate. Actually, the text here kind of eludes that maybe more people did that. So that Jesus didn't have to march on the dusty ground, but he could march on the linens of the people. That's what kings do. Kind of like laying out the red carpet. Think of it that way. Other people, it said. It said some others. Again, it makes me think that it's actually less. Some other people just went out to the fields and grabbed leafy branches almost insinuating that maybe they didn't have the means to put their cloaks down on the ground. And they just grabbed leafy branches and put them down and then waved them in the air. So let's, let's look at it this way here. The, the leafy branches are very much symbolizing the passage we read earlier from Psalm 118, Jesus coming to save the Israelite people. This is what people, in, in, when the Maccabees uh, saved Israel back a couple hundred years before, this is what they did. They brought out palm branches So they're they're giving Jesus the same honor as as that saving. So you see here like maybe the richer, wealthier people putting their cloaks on the ground and maybe the poorer, lesser off people putting whatever they could find, leafy branches on the ground. That shows me that Jesus is after the hearts of every person. The rich, the poor. The Israelite nationalists who are remembering the Maccabean story And those who just want to see a king take down Rome. Jesus is after all of them. And we're going to see that in increasing fashion in the weeks ahead. As we've said a couple of times today, they're shouting Hosanna, which means rescue us, save us, help us. It's it's an affirmation of praise. That's what the people are shouting. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the one unique Savior. And blessed is the coming kingdom, it says, of our father David. Again, go all the way back to the beginning of Mark. Mark 1, one of the first sermons we did back in January. It says that Jesus came with the good news of the gospel of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. Jesus came to bring in a new kingdom. Not a new nation. Not a new people group. A new kingdom, capital K that will be the biggest, brightest, eternal kingdom that one day will be made forever. Hosanna in the highest. So the most high God, it says. Kind of equating Jesus with the chief priest. like He's the most high God. And you wonder why the chief priests get mad in a couple of days? It's because this Jesus is riding in on a donkey and they're calling him the high priest. Think how threatening that is both to Rome with the kingly stuff and then the most high God, the chief priests and the Romans, they're seeing Jesus as a huge threat. And so when you come back on Thursday and Friday to our special services, you'll start to see what desperate people do to keep their power. They put to death what they think is a threat, but they didn't know who they were putting to death, did they? Last point here. What is Jesus' power that he uses to display his unique saving ability? This is somewhat of an anticlimactic ending. Again, Jesus is riding triumphantly into Jerusalem. People are shouting his name. They're laying things before him. There's a, people are going before him. They're behind him. It's like a huge parade. And then it says in verse 11, And he entered Jerusalem. He went into the temple, and when he looked around at everything, it kind of got late, and he went back to Bethany. It's a little bit of a letdown. Here's the Savior, here's the King, and the people maybe were expecting something big to happen that day. And Jesus just goes into the temple, kind of checks out the sights, and goes back home to Bethany and hangs out with Lazarus. Kind of an anticlimactic ending. Kind of like the Super Bowl when everybody runs out onto the field and fireworks are are exploding everywhere and music is playing and the crowds are shouting. And then the first quarter is a huge dud. Remember that Super Bowl a couple years ago with the Patriots and the Rams were like 0-0 forever, it felt like? Kind of like a, wow, we're really excited and this is the worst game ever. (laughs) And the Patriots ultimately win, which is our resurrection hope. But... (laughs) But it's, that's kind of what Mark 11 feels like. It's a little bit of an anticlimactic ending. So what is Jesus showing here? I'm just going to point out one big thing here. Jesus goes into the temple. That's his final destination on this Palm Sunday. Do you think he was just being a tourist, like a lot of the other pilgrims coming in for the Passover? I don't think. I think he, I think he knew the temple. I don't think he was checking out the latest artwork. Do you think he was scouting out his plan to destroy the temple, which is what the Jews would accuse him of later and put him to death for? Do you think he was like looking to see, okay, if I knock down this column, the whole thing will come down. Do you think that's what he was doing? No. Jesus ends in the temple on this day. Where did he begin? Where did he begin? Beth Page. Who cares, Stephen? Why, why, Why is Beth Page important? This is why Bethpage is important. Bethpage was the place where the priests and the sacrificial system kept the clean animals to be brought into the city of Jerusalem to be prepared for the Passover sacrifices, including the spotless, perfect Passover lamb. When Jesus comes from Bethpage, and finishes in the temple, he's basically presenting himself as the one, perfect, eternal Passover lamb to be sacrificed. And yes, he'll return to the temple the next day to cleanse the temple. And that's his way of continuing the cleansing process for himself to be sacrificed. But how is, unique, how is Jesus unique as the Savior? He's unique because... He's the one who is presenting himself in humility by giving up his power, laying himself down, presenting himself as the substitute and the sacrifice that would save the whole world. Bethpage to the temple. That's Jesus' triumphal entry. And it's triumphant, not because he's coming to destroy anything or overtake power, but he's coming to lay himself down, to offer himself That's the superpower of Jesus Christ, laying himself down for the sake of the many. So it got dark, and he went back to Bethany to be with his close friends. And he'd be back each day this week to finish the plan of redemption. So join us this week as we come back to celebrate the Last Supper, to take the Lord's table together, to pray with Jesus in the garden, to watch him on the cross and then to witness his resurrection on Easter morning. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we trust in you because you are trustworthy. You are the Savior who saves not by strength or power but by laying down your life. That is the unique upside-down, inside-out power of the kingdom of God that you have displayed in yourself. Thank you for your amazing love and your grace to us. Would you speak to each of us this week uniquely? Be kind to us as we journey along with you with our own struggles in life. Draw us deep into your loving embrace. We love you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.